Hello, welcome to Antiquitas, Leaders and Legends of the Ancient World, with Cornell University professor Barry Strauss, military historian, expert in the ancient world, and best-selling author. During this podcast, Barry and his guests will share stories about fascinating and controversial people and events in history and myth. And now, Professor Barry Strauss. We are off the rugged northwest coast of Greece on a late summer day in the afternoon, a little over 2,000 years ago. Hundreds of wooden warships and two hostile fleets, armed by tens of thousands of combatants, are struggling for control of the Roman Empire. One side, well-fed, well-armed, and pressing the advantage of a string of recent successes, is blocking the exit routes. The other, hungry, tired, depleted by illness, is desperately trying to break out and possibly to inflict a hard blow on the enemy as it makes its way to the exits. Suddenly, a flagship on one wing of the desperate fleet raises its sail and takes off. Another of the admirals joins in, and they follow the wind to freedom, taking with them an enormous war chest. With this resource, they can finance new ships, but they leave the bulk of their navy behind, not to mention an enormous land army. Is this the way it was supposed to happen? They did only limited harm to their enemy before they fled the scene. Were they selfish cowards who left their men in the lurch? Or were they good leaders who made painful but necessary choices? By losing their navy, had they lost the battle? Or by escaping and living to fight again another day, had they won? These are some of the questions that face the student of history as we study the Battle of Actium. The Battle of Actium took place on September 2nd, 31 BC, just under 2,050 years ago. It is one of the most important and paradoxical battles in history. It's romantic, too, and for me, it's personal. Actium is important because it was a hinge of history. It led to the end of the civil wars that had racked the Roman world for two decades. Indeed, it ended a century of revolution, beginning with the Gracchi in 133 BC, that had slowly destroyed the political system of the Roman Republic and led the way for the monarchy that we know of as the Roman Empire. Actium is paradoxical because it is one of the most poorly documented important battles in ancient history. And as we'll see, its outcome is not as obvious as it might seem. Actium might just be the most romantic battle in history, or at least the most scandalous. One side was commanded by two people who were long-term lovers. They had produced three children together. They're so famous that they're even the subject of a play by Shakespeare, which is named after them, Antony and Cleopatra. And finally, Actium is personal because it is one of the first ancient battle sites that I ever visited long ago. It's a dramatic and instructive place because the topography shows very clearly the difference that the two sides enjoyed just in the sight of their camps. I've been to Actium several times. The first time, I was in the company of some of the most distinguished ancient historians and classicists of my generation. We were all kids then, and no one knew what careers would lie ahead of us. These people included Actium scholars William Murray and Costas Zakos, military historian Victor Davis Hansen, folklorist and historian of science Adrian Mayer, historian and political theorist Josiah Ober, classicist and archaeologist Sarah Morris. And there were others, too. Wow, to be in such company. Was I fortunate or what? On another occasion, I had the experience of sailing into Actium during the early morning. In the soft light, 
with the mountains in the distance, with the mist rising, with the water, land, and sky, all various shades of the same color. Blue. The scene looked like a Japanese print. You pass fishing boats. Then the sun rises, coming out from behind the clouds, and leaves a path of gold on the water. It's hard to imagine the place as a scene of blood and terror. You even pass the Cleopatra Yacht Club, which tells you that someone has a sense of humor and of marketing. There's another reason entirely why Actium has personal resonance for me, and that is I'm currently writing a book about it. What you're hearing today is a progress report. I'm still working through a number of the issues and reading through the very large bibliography. No doubt I'll change my mind about this or that. If you have any comments or suggestions at this early stage, please let me know. But let's get back to the history. Actium marked the most dramatic clash in a troubled relationship that had gone on for more than a dozen years between the two most powerful men in Rome, Mark Antony, in Latin, Marcus Antonius, and Gaius Octavian, later known as Augustus. Ever since the assassination of the dictator Julius Caesar in 44 BC, Antony and Octavian had fought over his legacy. Antony was Caesar's greatest general, or at least the greatest general who still supported him. Others had defected in protest of Caesar's grab for supreme power. Octavian was Caesar's grandnephew and was named in Caesar's will as his chief heir and posthumously as his adopted son. Antony was the scion of a noble family and as someone in his early 40s, a man in the prime of life. Octavian was only 18 and he was a noble only on his mother's side. His father was the son of a banker from a small Italian city south of Rome. True, his mother was Julius Caesar's niece and so was connected to a patrician Roman family indeed. But we need to remember just how snobby and status-conscious the Roman elite was, and to them, Octavian's ancestry looked second-rate. By the way, those ages I gave you were for 44 BC. Octavian was only 18 then, and Antony was in his early 40s. In any case, Octavian made up in ambition and talent what he lacked in blood. He was cunning and ruthless. Antony was a better general, a more charismatic figure, a more noble personage in the eyes of the Senate, and, of course, a more famous lover. But Octavian outdid him in guile and in the dark arts of diplomacy. On top of that, Octavian had a superb general and admiral as his second-in-command, Marcus Agrippa. The two of them, Octavian and Agrippa, made one of the most successful teams in history. In 44 and 43 B.C., Antony and Octavian quarreled over Caesar's inheritance, insulted each other in public, went to war and stood with swords drawn on opposite sides of bloody battlefields, made peace by dividing the Roman Empire between themselves and a third junior partner, Marcus Lepidus, but only on the condition of ordering the judicial murder of thousands of prominent Romans, and engaged in two proxy wars in and around Italy, one waged by Antony's brother and his wife, the other by Antony's ally, Sextus Pompey. Then, in 40 BC, Antony and Octavian made peace. They even sealed the deal by a marriage between Antony and Octavian's sister, Octavia. It was not unusual for Roman women to make political marriages. Octavia knew how to play the game, and she proved to be a mediator, mother, and spy, as well as a wife. But she couldn't keep Antony from the ally who was also his mistress, because, of course, Octavia was not the most famous woman in Antony's life. His lover was Cleopatra, the queen of Egypt. A wealthy and powerful kingdom, Egypt was by far the most important place left on the Mediterranean not to be ruled by Rome. That is not to say that Egypt was fully independent. It was not. 
It was a Roman ally and to all intents and purposes, a client state. The Egyptians knew that at any time Rome might swallow them up and make Egypt a Roman province. After Octavian pushed Lepidus aside, Antony and Octavian were the two rulers of the Roman world. Octavian governed Italy and the western half of the Roman Empire, while Antony governed the empire's eastern half. Octavian expressed outrage over Antony's relationship with Cleopatra and Antony's treatment of Octavia. But Antony wrote back to Octavian and blasted him for hypocrisy, pointing out, quite rightly, that Octavian himself often cheated on his own wife. Rome was not Puritan America or Victorian England. Still, Octavian won propaganda points when Antony divorced Octavia in 32 BC. They had been married for eight years and had produced two children, both girls. It's unlikely that Antony now formally married Cleopatra, but the two of them were together. But in what way precisely? What about Cleopatra? She and Antony are famous for their love affair, as Shakespeare has Antony say to Cleopatra. Let Rome and Tiber melt and the wide arch of the ranged empire fall. Here is my space. And as he has Cleopatra say to Antony, eternity was in our lips and eyes, bliss in our brows bent. None are parts so poor, but was a race of heaven. They are so still. And they certainly might have felt passionately about each other, but alongside any romantic motives were the cold facts of power politics. As a client state, Egypt could be expected to supply money, manpower, and equipment to Rome. In the eastern part of the empire, Rome meant Antony. As the leader of Egypt, Cleopatra needed to protect her country's interests by enjoying a good relationship with Rome. Sleeping with Rome's leader in the eastern Mediterranean was as close to a guarantee of a good relationship as she could get. Indeed, it was a tried and true tactic. Antony was not the first Roman lover taken by Cleopatra. Before him, she slept with the Colossus who bestrode the Roman world, Julius Caesar. As Caesar's mistress, Cleopatra gave birth to a son, whom she claimed to be Caesar's child. That boy now 16 years old at the time of Actium, ruled Egypt alongside her as co-ruler, in theory at any rate. His name was Ptolemy XV, but his nickname was Caesarian, or Little Caesar. Octavian's propaganda blasted Antony as a drunkard who was under the thumb of his mistress, a foreign dominatrix. Octavian accused Antony of being a once noble Roman who had gone native. This made better propaganda than fact. Antony may have lived large, but at bottom, he was a Roman administrator doing his job. Still, when Octavian started gathering his forces against Antony, even before Octavian formally declared war, Antony responded poorly. It was one thing to accept naval and financial assistance from Egypt. It was another to allow Cleopatra to be with him in command of the fleet. A Roman had never shared command of an army with a foreigner. Cleopatra was a foreign woman and Romans were bigots and sexists. Antony's refusal to send Cleopatra home cost him the support of some of his most important allies. For her part, Cleopatra had no intention of going home. She was not making a feminist statement. No, she was defending the interests of her country. It was said that Cleopatra furnished a quarter of the warships in Antony's huge fleet, as well as all the supplies and nearly two million pounds of silver. Cleopatra feared that if she went home to Egypt, Antony and Octavian might make a deal at the expense of her country, herself, and her son. As Caesar's adopted son and heir, Octavian felt threatened by Caesar's alleged birth son, even if Caesarion 
was illegitimate. Octavian wanted Caesarian to be out of the way. Octavian's ambition was to gain all the power that Caesar had once had, which meant eventually wrestling the eastern half of the empire from Antony. Octavian had the brains and brutality to succeed, even if, unlike Antony, he was no warrior. Piece by piece, Octavian built up the means to challenge his rival. In 32 BC, the triumvirate expired without renewal. The table was set for a clash of two dynasts, Antony and Octavian, to control the Roman world. And one of them had the help of Cleopatra's shrewd mind and Egypt's fabled wealth. Yet Octavian's determination, talent, and ruthlessness forced his rivals to risk everything in a single battle. Octavian also ensured Cleopatra's lasting fame, surely an unanticipated result. Cleopatra's image and celebrity dominated Rome as Octavian prepared for war, making her an easy target. Octavian made the crafty choice to declare war not on Antony, but on Cleopatra. He said he was fighting not against a fellow Roman, but against a foreign queen. Octavian claimed that Antony was under Cleopatra's thumb and that she had seduced him from his loyal Roman wife. Octavian received help from prominent defectors from Antony's side. They fed him inside information that he was able to twist to make it seem that Antony had betrayed Rome for Egypt. Public opinion rallied to Octavian's side against the Egyptian queen. And so we come to the Actium campaign and the battle itself. Here things get difficult. Virtually all of the written sources represent the point of view of Octavian, the future Augustus. Antony and Cleopatra don't get to tell their side of the story. We get some help from archaeological evidence, but not all that much. Furthermore, the written sources that we have are scanty and not all that coherent. We rely primarily on Plutarch, who lived over a century later, and on Cassius Dio, who lived over two centuries later. The historian, therefore, has to engage in informed speculation. What you're going to hear now is my take, and in fact, it's a preliminary version as I research my book. So here goes. Antony and Cleopatra carried out their strategy. They went to war with a huge fleet of 500 warships and 300 transport ships, really big by ancient standards. They also reportedly had a huge land army of 100,000 infantry and 12,000 cavalry. Again, enormous numbers. What did they plan to do with all these forces? Invade Italy? That would have been difficult. Italy had few harbors and they were well fortified. On top of that, landing a partly Egyptian armada in Italy would have been a public relations disaster. More likely, I think, Antony and Cleopatra planned to draw the enemy into a battle further eastward, using Greece as their base. As they set up stations in western Greece, they gave the ancient world the remarkable sight of Egyptian naval squadrons in the central Mediterranean, part of Antony's fleet. And that leaves a third possibility. Perhaps Antony and Cleopatra thought they could get away with doing, well, nothing. Perhaps they thought they could simply intimidate the enemy through the sheer size of their forces. They had more ships and men than the other side. The sources report that Octavian had 400 warships, as opposed to Antony and Cleopatra's 500, 80,000 infantry, as opposed to 100,000 on the other side, and 12,000 cavalry, in which they did match what Antony and Cleopatra had. These are significant resources, but not as great as their rivals. Antony and Cleopatra were confident that their superiority in money, ships, and experience would win the day, but they underestimated the foe. 
This, rather than the supposedly malevolent influence of Cleopatra that the ancient sources claim, surely this is what led Antony into serious error. Antony had last seen Octavian in battle ten years earlier, at Philippi, where Octavian did not impress. In fact, he barely escaped the charge of cowardice. But continual fighting since then had seasoned Octavian. More important, his veteran and loyal commander, Marcus Agrippa, had mastered the art of war at sea while fighting off Sicily several years earlier. Perhaps Antony was not prepared for the danger that he faced. Agrippa is not well known today, but he was indispensable to Octavian. Octavian was a brilliant strategist and cunning diplomat, but he was not a battlefield commander. That's where Agrippa came in. He was a supremely talented warrior and a totally loyal friend. He was, in short, the perfect number two. And that's the paradox of number twos. The better they are, the more they remain in the shadows, which is why Agrippa is not as famous today as he should be. Antony and Cleopatra thought they could intimidate the enemy through the sheer size of their forces, but they didn't understand the new way of war that Octavian and Agrippa were going to unleash upon them. Octavian and Agrippa planned a one-two punch. In his war against Sextus Pompey in Sicily, Agrippa had mastered naval warfare. He had a degree of skill at sea unmatched by any of the commanders on Antony's side. Then there was Octavian, who would use all the arts of diplomacy, espionage, bribery, and propaganda to weaken Antony's support among his allies. History is full of examples of states that spend a fortune on the military only to lose because they didn't understand the revolution in warfare that had been unleashed by the enemy. For example, France versus Germany in 1940, Rome versus the Germanic tribes in the 5th century AD, and Xerxes versus the Greeks in 480 BC. With those examples in mind, let's return to the Actium War in 31 BC. Antony and Cleopatra made their base at the entrance to the Gulf of Ambracia in northwestern Greece, roughly in the area of the modern city of Prevesa. This is a strategic site that offers access to a large protected body of water, and so it's not surprising that over the millennia it was the location of more than one battle. Prevesa, for example, played a role in the Napoleonic Wars. It's better known as the site of an important naval battle between the fleets of the Ottoman Empire and the so-called Holy League, an alliance of the Papacy, Spain, Genoa, Venice, and the Knights of Malta. Over 500 ships fought in the Battle of Prevesa on September 28, 1538, and the result was an Ottoman victory. It was one of the three largest sea battles in the Mediterranean in the 16th century but Actium in 31 BC. Let's take a closer look at the site of Actium. It's located on the Ionian Sea, which is the part of the Mediterranean that lies between western Greece and southern Italy. Actium is found at a place where a narrow body of water leads from the Ionian Sea into the Ambracian Gulf. This entry channel is a little less than half a mile wide. The Ambracian Gulf itself is about 25 miles long by about 9 miles wide. Let's focus on the entry point to the Gulf. Two peninsulas guard that entrance, one on the north and one on the south. Antony's forces were encamped on the southern peninsula. This is a narrow, sandy spit of land. 
There was a small town here in ancient times, but the main attraction was a temple to the god Apollo Actius, an ancient and prestigious shrine. In other words, this was Actium proper. Most of Antony and Cleopatra's men and ships were with them at or around Actium, but some were in supply bases in southern Greece in the Peloponnesus. The reason is that it required a big logistical effort to get food to such large forces as Antony and Cleopatra had. One thing that Antony and Cleopatra did not do, they made no effort to stop Octavian's fleet from crossing the sea from Italy. That's not surprising because they wanted to fight, or at least to impress. The enemy encamped close by. Octavian made his base on the northern peninsula, opposite Antony and Cleopatra. This offered to him high ground, where the men were not so exposed to mosquitoes and malaria. Antony crossed over and attacked Octavian there more than once and tried to cut him off from his water supply, but Antony failed. Still, coin evidence shows that Antony did win some sort of limited victory, although we can't reconstruct the details. Overall, it was a failure. He didn't dislodge Octavian. In addition to this failure, two big things went wrong for Antony and Cleopatra. First, Octavian continued a campaign of wooing Antony's allies away. And he wooed them with various reasons. On the pull side, Octavian had a lot of money to offer them. On the push side, Cleopatra had made many enemies in the eastern Mediterranean, and Octavian played on their fears. Cleopatra wanted to expand the influence of Egypt and its power, and with Antony on her side, she had Rome behind her, and so she seemed like a real threat to a number of leaders. The result was a series of key desertions from Antony to Octavian, desertions both of leaders and of allied contingents. In short, Octavian engaged in a successful campaign of subversion. Octavian understood very well that careful and sometimes dishonest diplomacy is a force multiplier. Octavian understood that sometimes the most important part of waging war takes place before you get to the battlefield. It's almost as if Octavian had read Sun Tzu, the great Chinese theorist of strategy. Of course, he hadn't read it. Second, Agrippa spent months waging a successful campaign of indirect warfare against the forces of Antony and Cleopatra, using his ships to cut off supplies to their bases elsewhere in Greece as well as Actium. <laughs> Again, who did they read? I'm almost tempted to say that Agrippa had read the work of Liddell Hart, a 20th century theorist of indirect warfare, but of course Agrippa had not. By the end of the summer, Agrippa had trapped the enemy's forces in the Gulf of Ambracia without access to adequate supplies. One of Antony's admirals led an attempt to break out, but he failed. By September 2nd, Antony and Cleopatra's men were hungry and sick with malaria and dysentery, leaving them no choice but to fight or flee. Why Antony lost the initiative and why he allowed Agrippa to get the upper hand, these are questions that we can't answer, at least not easily. It seems likely that Antony put up a stiffer resistance than our biased sources state and that his men fought hard in the various places that Agrippa attacked and that Agrippa ultimately took. It also needs to be said that Agrippa was an excellent admiral. In fact, he had much more experience at sea than Antony did. By the same token, Antony had experienced naval personnel. The Egyptian fleet had an excellent reputation. Perhaps another factor to consider is this. When it comes to command, two heads are not better than one. Agrippa had a free hand to fight as he sought fit. 
Antony might have had to negotiate with Cleopatra. Although the two were lovers, they did not have the same interests all the time. Antony thought primarily of Rome, while Cleopatra focused on Egypt. Again, this is speculation. Antony's best remaining general, for others had deserted. He wanted to abandon the fleet and retreat eastward towards Macedonia. He wanted to fight it out on land. But Antony decided to stay and fight a naval battle, supposedly because Cleopatra wanted to do so. But it's hard to say if that's the truth or just enemy propaganda. Shakespeare invents an ordinary soldier to give Antony advice. Here's what the soldier says to Antony. O noble emperor, do not fight by sea. Trust not to rotten planks. Do you misdoubt this sword and these my wounds? Let the Egyptians and the Phoenicians go a-ducking. We have used to conquer standing on the earth and fighting foot to foot. It's true that Antony was overwhelmingly a land general, but he insisted in this case on fighting at sea. We don't know how many of the original 500 warships Antony and Cleopatra had left, but however many they did, they had to burn a lot of them. They were left with only 230 warships on which they loaded 20,000 soldiers and 2,000 archers. Surely these were the best men. Octavian now outnumbered them. Octavian had 400 warships with 35 to 40,000 troops on deck. The warships of this period were bigger and heavier than the ships that had fought in the Battle of Salamis hundreds of years earlier. Warships at the time of Actium were primarily quadriremes and quinquiremes, also known as fours and fives from the number of rowers. These ships also had large numbers of marines on deck. For all his disadvantages, Antony did, however, have one remaining advantage. He had a small number of some very large ships, and they could do real damage in a head-to-head charge. So Antony wanted to ram his enemy ships. We know about these very large ships from the terrific work done by archaeologists measuring the sockets that once held Antony's rams on Augustus's victory monument, which was put up after the battle. Here I'm largely following Professor William Murray's excellent work. In ancient sea battles, warships were moved by crews of rowers, not by sail. Usually the sails were taken down before battle and left on land. But Actium was an exception. Before Actium, Antony ordered his men to load the sails on board. The reason is because this was meant to be a breakout battle. Sure, it's possible that Antony also wanted to try and see if he could defeat Octavian's fleet, or at least do a lot of damage to it. But he wanted to have the option of fleeing. The sails would allow the ships to move faster once they had finished the battle. We should also note that Antony loaded his treasure chests on board, a sign that he was ready to escape. We can't envy Antony the job of rallying his men for battle. A pre-battle pep talk was needed, but how could he adequately take into account his forces' suffering or their weakened condition? Antony had a reputation for being a great orator, and he would need all his skill that day. So, on the morning of September 2nd, Antony rode out of the harbor to fight. He was on the right wing of his fleet, that is to say, the north. Opposite him, Agrippa faced him on the left wing of the Roman fleet, also on the north. Although Antony had a small number of very large ships, the vast majority of ships on both sides were the standard-sized heavy warships of the era. Yet with his big ships, 
Antony hoped to ram the enemy and do real damage. That's on the north end of the two fleets. On the south end of the two fleets, things were very different. On the Roman side, Octavian was located. He preferred smaller, faster ships, and that's what he and his crews fought in. Now, some of the sources make it seem as if it was these small ships that won the battle. That's not true. We probably get that report. It probably derives from a now-missing account that flattered Octavian, possibly from the memoirs that he published not all that long afterwards. But where was Cleopatra? She and her Egyptian squadron formed a second line of Antony's fleet. So when the battle began with the two sides coming towards each other and facing off for an interval, then Antony moved forward on his right and he tried to outflank the enemy, but the enemy responded and wouldn't allow him to outflank him. The center of Antony's fleet was slower and it stayed behind. So all attention now was on the north, on the right wing of Antony's fleet, the left wing of the Roman fleet. Antony hoped to charge Agrippa and break his fleet, but the wily Agrippa held back, all the while taking advantage of his superiority in numbers to lengthen his line and threaten to outflank Antony. It became clear that Antony was not going to be able to ram the enemy's ships. His men were too tired for that. The fleets were too far apart. So Antony had to rely on missiles, and Agrippa responded. Men on both sides shot arrows and catapult balls, and some of these may recently have been found on the seafloor off Actium. They also threw fire-throwing artillery. As they got closer, they threw javelins. Antony's ships were equipped with wooden towers mounted on deck. We can imagine the battle in all its drama with trumpet blasts and battle chants and the sound of the catapults in action. We can also imagine the exhaustion that began to afflict men on both sides. Some of Antony's ships in the rear went back into the harbor. And now, Cleopatra turned. She turned southward to escape. Was she betraying Antony? It seems more likely that she was following a plan. It's clear enough that the fighting represented a gamble on the part of Antony and Cleopatra and that the gamble failed. But when it comes to Cleopatra, the sources reach the height of bias. They claim she lost her nerve and talked Antony into fleeing, or even that she forced his hand by sailing away without warning, by betraying him in effect. It's worth quoting the version in the historian Cassius Dio. I'll quote, The battle was indecisive for a long time, and neither antagonist could get the upper hand anywhere. But the end came in the following way. Cleopatra riding at anchor behind the combatants, could not endure the long and anxious waiting until a decision could be reached. But true to her nature as a woman and an Egyptian, she was tortured by the agony of the long suspense and by the constant and fearful expectation of either possible outcome. And so she suddenly turned to flight herself and raised the signal for the others, her own subjects. This account is sexist and bigoted. Shakespeare reports an argument in a similar vein he has one of his characters exclaim, Antony claps on his sea wing, and like a doting mallard, leaving the fight in height, flies after her. I never saw an action of such shame. Experience, manhood, honor, ne'er before did violate so itself. There's a much more plausible explanation, and that is that Antony and Cleopatra had tossed the dice in an attempt to overwhelm Octavian's fleet. 
When it became clear that they were losing, they sailed off to fight again another day. Antony left his flagship and took a smaller boat to Cleopatra's flagship. Whatever the case, they managed to break out and escape with about 70 ships. The enemy didn't have their sails on board, and so they couldn't catch up to them. If Actium was a breakout battle, well, a breakout took place. The most important participants had succeeded. Antony and Cleopatra had escaped, and with them their treasury. Octavian and Agrippa might have been disappointed not to have trapped their enemy. Again, if we look at breakout battles in history, what happens is you got to break out. And rarely do you get to break out with your entire army. Often only a portion gets to break out. And Antony and Cleopatra did get the most important portion away. Still, the situation wasn't great. Their remaining ships at Actium were probably lost. What they had still, their major card that they could play, if you forgive the anachronism, Romans didn't play cards, the major card was a large land army. All eyes now turned to that army. If the army had been full of fighting spirit and optimism, then Antony and Cleopatra might have been able to continue the war in spite of losing at Actium. But the damage had been done, the cost of months of slow defeats, terrible living conditions, and constant propaganda and espionage on the part of Octavian had weakened the troops' morale. The land army soon surrendered in negotiations with Octavians. Octavian was a very smooth talker, and he was quite successful in his dealings with Antony's legions. That negotiation, it may be said, was even more important than the naval battle. So Antony and Cleopatra lost their forces. They lost their fleet first, and then they lost their land army. They escaped from Actium. They escaped first to the Peloponnesus in southern Greece and then to Egypt. But Agrippa and Octavian eventually followed them there. Now, Antony and Cleopatra did not give up easily. They planned to resist and even at one point to escape to India. But one by one, most of their few remaining supporters turned on them and all of their escape routes closed. In August 30 BC, the two lovers each took the only step left to control their destiny. They committed suicide in turn. So fell antiquity's most romantic power couple, Antony by his sword, Cleopatra perhaps by the infamous asp, or perhaps by poison. Egypt now belonged to Octavian. Egypt was a Roman province, and Octavian was its pharaoh. The prestige of Alexandria, the city of Alexander the Great, of Caesar and Cleopatra, now belonged to Octavian. By force of arms and by the power of persuasion, Octavian showed himself to be Caesar's son. He now stood alone, the master of the Roman Empire, and it would be Roman indeed. If Antony and Cleopatra had won at Actium, the eyes of the Roman world might have shifted eastward. Actium kept the center of gravity of the empire in Rome, where it would remain for another three centuries. Octavian celebrated his victory at Actium. It appeared on its coinage, in official art, and in the work of favored poets. Actium received a triumphal procession back in Rome. At the site of the battle itself, Octavian constructed a new city called Nicopolis or Victory City, dominated by a huge monument displaying the captured rams of Antony and Cleopatra's ships. Its ruins overlooking the battle site are still visible today. Actium is off the beaten tourist path. It's far from Santorini or Mykonos 
or the other isles of gold. But if you want to stand on a hill and shiver at the cunning of history, you'll find no better place than the site of Augustus's victory monument just outside the modern city of Previsa. Well, thank you for listening to today's podcast on the Battle of Actium. As I said, I'm writing a book on the subject, so what you've heard is just a preview. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you. Just go to my website, barrystrauss.com, and send me a message. And keep your eyes peeled for my book, which will be published in a year or two, or three. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please rate us on iTunes or write a review. Join us next time for the final episode in this season series on great battles of the ancient world. We'll explore Rome's disastrous confrontation with the Germanic tribes in the Teutoburg Forest. See you next time on Antiquitas. Theme music by Lush Life.